and announces he's out. And the Ashes wait is almost over, leaving us one final chance to preview the series opener and see where Dave Warner's injury is at. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of November. Yeah, welcome into the Splash. I'm your host, Phil Pryor. Sorry, I missed you Monday and Tuesday. Uh, dashed over to WA to go and uh, explore the southern region. Margaret River, shout out to everyone over there. Uh, had a blast. Uh, thank you very much, Wilson Smith, for filling in Monday and Tuesday. Did a, a stellar job. Uh, there's plenty of high-quality journos and presenters in the Fox Sports Australia building, so luckily I wasn't missed. Uh, look, today on the show, big show, we got, uh, as I said, Socceroos coach Ange Postacoglu uh, has fronted the media to announce that uh, he's out. Uh, he's not going to Russia, uh, unlike uh, his team or former team, the Socceroos. Uh, so we're going to chat to Daniel Garb all about that and where it leaves the Socceroos in a moment. Uh, and then later on in the program, Joe Barton joins from the Fox Sports Cricket team. Um, one final chance to, to preview the Ashes, as, as I mentioned, off the top. We're going to discuss Dave Warner's injury, uh, the replacement, or, or who could potentially come in and replace him if Dave Warner is not right to go, uh, and just generally the, the media build-up, which has been pretty much all time. Uh, so all that to look forward to on the splash today. So joining me on the splash to discuss uh, the Ange Postacoglu situation further is our own Daniel Garb uh, from Fox Sports News. Garby, thanks for joining. Thank you, mate. Yeah, a big day, a surprising day and a, a shame of a day, really. Yeah, absolutely. So the big question, of course, kicking things off is uh, why? Why has this happened? Uh, <laughs> why did Ange make this decision? Yeah, it's amazing that after all the speculation and and after the press conference this morning, we still don't know the definitive reason. To be honest, I don't think there is one. I don't think there's one factor that is, has led to this decision. I think there's a number of contributing factors. I think the main one seems to be perhaps the burden that came with with the job and, and perhaps not feeling as though the FFA was stable enough or, or supportive enough to, to help him through it all. Um, yeah. And he felt as though maybe he was flying the flag on his own at times and you know the criticism that came with the job I think is very very minor but maybe just added a little bit to the personal burden and then I think his aspirations to coach in his own right and maybe he feels as though the best time taking all of that into account is to is to go now um, but ultimately I think the line that stood out best for me was that the toll professionally and personally was just a massive burden and I think he feels as though he's reached the end of the road in in that regard. Uh, at a personal level, you look at the way that he was brought to tears when he spoke about his family, what they've had to go through over the last yeah. four years of him being in this in this job. Um, and it, you know, I think he's also scarred by the past a little bit in that regard. When he was out of work, and there's a story of him and his wife running coaching clinics in a local park, you know, for, for yeah. you know, for basically to, to make ends meet, but also to keep his skills sharp and stay involved in the game. Uh, you know, I think all of those things came into his mind when things became overbearing over this last um, period in the job. But professionally as well, it's a 
it's the most pressurising and personally gruelling situations when you're in charge of your own country. And mm. so it all started back in, in 2013 when he had to regenerate the entire national team, move aside, you know, the players who had been there for so long. Lucas Neal, um, Luke Wilkshire, Brett Holman, Mark Schwarzer departed, Harry Kuehl left the, the scene. And you had to regenerate things and deal with that transition, win the Asian Cup on home soil, which was a huge yeah. uh, burden in terms of pressure and expectation. And then there's two and a half nice. years of qualifying, which is just no other country goes through a tougher phase in Australia. Simple <laughs> yeah. as that, without travel and everything. And I think he just feels as though he's got nothing left to give. All of those factors combined, it's, he feels as though it's better for, for him and better for the national team if he steps aside now. Because while people might say he's on the downhill slope, and he's, the hard part's done. You've got the World Cup on the horizon, fair enough. There's still a lot of pressure and a huge amount of work that goes into preparing a team for the biggest competition in yeah. world sport, the World Cup. And, and maybe he just doesn't feel as though he's got the energy left on a personal and professional level, taking all those things into account to fulfill the mission. And uh, it's better for everyone if he steps aside. And maybe, uh, you know, he's preserving some energy for... Uh, for a next chapter, which I do want to ask you about in a moment, Garby. But you made a good point uh, in in that early where uh, you 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 thought that uh, that the FFA weren't um, you know weren't providing him the support because publicly it's it's the coach's job to support his players um, and you know be yeah. uh, be everything for for his playing group regardless of, of whether or not. You know, he, he believes his players deserve yeah. the support at times. And then from that, it's the FFA's job to s- publicly to support their coach. And, and I, yeah. think, I think let me you're just right cla- Let me just clarify that. Yeah. You're right. Let me just clarify that. The support they've given the team to allow him to do his job is second enough. Yeah. That, that, that support is unbelievable. The, the support that the national team has got... Um, in terms of resources and uh, hotels and staff, second to none, world-class. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking more in a holistic situation where yeah. the FFA is very unstable at the moment and uh, he maybe feels as though actually carrying the game all in all is too much for him to carry right now mm. um, and uh, perhaps things aren't stable enough at the top end that it's just becoming exhausting yeah. for him yeah. to, 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 to feel as though he's the only one moving forward in that regard when everything else going around him is so chaotic. Yeah. And, you know, if it was the first year in the job, that wouldn't matter. But like all the things I outlined before, the four years of it, I just feel as though it's just become too much. He just feels as though probably it's become too much. Yeah. The, the, uh, for anyone out there that subscribes and listens to the Fox Football Podcast, uh, which you're obviously a part of, they probably have a better idea of, um, of just what is going on, um, you know, in, in the, the FFA at the moment. Um, but could mm. you uh, just kind of briefly outline for the Splash listeners um, what is that instability, uh, you know, that, I- that is uh, involved in the, in the footballing governing body in this country yeah. right now? Well, basically, there's a dispute between the FFA and the clubs over how much of a say both parties has moving forward, and they're at a crossroads and at loggerheads, and it looks as though FIFA's going to step in, and uh, unless something changes drastically in the next 10 days, mm. FIFA's going to step in and take charge of the game. That's not the reason why, um, you know, Andrew's made this decision, not, not at all. No. But in terms of the FFA factor, which is, as I said, it's only a part of it, I think, not the large part, just a part of it. It's just a sign that they haven't got everything together. It's just a sign yeah, that things yeah. are, unfortunately, at that level, are just not quite in sync, which is, is obvious. And 
he just feels that after four years of, of that being a symptom, I just think it's, it's too much. One factor of it is too much for him to bear. And then you've got the other factors at play as well, which are all adding up to him feeling as though it's, it's the end of the road. After the Socceroos failed to qualify through the, uh, the group, um, you know, pooling stage, uh, uh, that the FFA took far too long to, you know, to come out and, and you know, put their po- support behind Ange Postacoglu at that time when, um, when you know, everyone was queuing up to criticise him. Um, you know, and and do you reckon how much of how much uh, of that part of the process do you think is um, uh, has taken its toll on Ange? Again, I don't think that's a massive part of his decision. Yeah, I think he understands that criticism is part of the game. I think it frustrated him at times. I think he definitely will look back and say, maybe I could have dealt with this situation a little bit better, with that situation a bit better. But everyone does that in every job they're in. They look back and they go, geez, I could have maybe maybe handled that one a little bit better if I had my my time again. But when you're in the pressurised situation, sometimes you don't act as you should. And he'll probably look back and say, there's a couple of instances there where, yeah, maybe I was a little bit short, a little bit defensive, a little bit too abrasive with with things. But all in all, that's not a not a massive factor. Again, I think it's just that part of it, the criticism, maybe 10% at best, when you add it on top of everything, everything else that I spoke about and yeah. things becoming hugely overbearing, it can just add a little bit more to it. Maybe that's at a personal level where he simply yeah. feels as though it, it took its toll on, on his family and all that, all they've gone through recently. So, you know, we're just we're, we're speculating a bit, but, you know, we, we've seen enough of it now. We've read enough. We've heard enough from him to probably add everything up in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, a lot more than myself or or splash listeners about Ange Postacoglu, uh, you know, the person. Um, he, he's, he does, but, you know, all this criticism aside, um, he does seem like, a, you know, a very lovely uh, person. Um, and I think we, should, we, we all need to, you know, wish him the best in, in his future endeavours. Um, and, you know, but, but I do want to sort of ask you as well, how much do you think, you know the end of the, uh, the 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 final part of this, uh, you know, chapter of, of coaching the Socceroos will hurt Ange's legacy as a coach in this country. I don't think it hurts his legacy. I think there's unfinished business there, that's for sure. Mm. But I don't think it hurts his his legacy because ultimately he's achieved everything that he needed to achieve in his time in charge. He yeah. he restored faith in the national team and regenerated it. That was his first mantra. He then went and won the Asian Cup after performing so well at a World Cup and got us to the next one and kept the streak going mm. and brought in a whole new group of players and then turned them into uh, largely a success story. So I don't think his legacy is in danger. In fact, I think his legacy is intact and it's preserved even more because he's walked away now. I'm not saying that is the reason why he's walked away, but uh, it's uh, there's no damage there. Um, unfortunately, he, he just won't get the chance to, to carry it all on and, and uh, fulfil potentially the ultimate of, uh, of taking us to a, a level never before seen at, uh, at a World Cup. But that's just the unfortunate aspect of the situation. But, you know, he's been an incredible ambassador and leader for Australian football. Simple as that. Mm. Um, and he's shown us that we can mix it with the best on the world stage. He's shown us that we should be bold and, and play without fear and instilled that in his group of players. And I think he's also laid the groundwork for an Australian coach moving forward to take charge of this team and future Australian coaches to prove that you know, we're as good as anyone in the world in that regard. And our, and our men 
behind the scenes can match it with anyone too. I think he's left an incredible legacy in that regard. Mm. And and finally, Garby, uh, a twofold question. Uh, part A: uh, What what do you who or who do you instinctively believe will take over the Socceroos job? Um, and and where do you instinctively feel like Ange Postacoglu will go in his career? But we'll start with the the, the Socceroos yeah. job. I think it will be a local option and I think Graham Arnold is the front runner. I think Kevin Musket will come into the reckoning. I think Tony Popovich will be discussed if it all falls over for him in Turkey, which is a possibility considering how unstable it is over there at his club right now. Um, But uh, I do think Graham Arnold, considering his achievements in recent times, is the front runner in that regard. Um, He's just uh, done an amazing job with Sydney FC, matured so much in the 10 years since he had the job. And looks as though he's got the personality and the clout to, to step into that dressing room and uh, and add to what Ange has, has done. So I think he's probably the leader. An international coach people will be asking about. I just don't think we've got the money to get a top-level international coach that's better than what we have on offer here. Okay. Talk about a Carlo Ancelotti or a Laurent Blanc. I just don't think we've got the money to get those guys. That could work because... You know, we've got the World Cup and then the Asian Cup. You can put them on a short-term contract and they can do both tournaments and then a local guy can step in after that and get the next cycle going. But, you know, unless you're going to get someone who's way above what you've got locally, there's no point. You might as well go with the local option, which I think is what we'll do. For Ange, he'll land up in club management somewhere. It'll be overseas. And I really hope that uh, it's at a really good club that gives him the chance to show what he can do and that he can be successful in his own right, but also, crucially, lay the foundations for Australian coaches moving forward and be a pioneer in that regard. And we can Mm. crack the next frontier of Australian coaches in Europe, showing that they can mix it with the best and that uh, others can follow in his footsteps. And he can really um, break that stigma that Australians can't coach like others can in the world because they are most certainly capable. And and hopefully we'll get the chance to prove that. And do you think he'll, he'll need to go and do that in Europe first or could there maybe be a stopover in Asia first? Yeah, maybe in Asia first, but, uh, I think he's got his eyes set on Europe and I think yeah. that'll be the way that he wants to go and I think he's got enough good people around him and and working for him that they'll, he'll get that opportunity. Okay, excellent insight, Garvey. Thanks for joining the Splash. Okay, thank you. Healy, Hartley, Adam Dale, Rogers, Fleming, Hodge, Harris, War, Border, McGrath, Warren, Langer, Martin, Hayden, Berry, Robertson, Julian, Ponting, Clark, Clark without an E, McGill, and Jeeves. These are just some of the former first-class stars, including the last one I read out, who have been quoted and made headlines over the last few days about the Ashes series coming up. <laughs> Tom Morris of on the most recent Fox Sports Cricket podcast there. It's been a mammoth ride uh, building up to this first Ashes test. Uh, Joe Barton, who joins me on the Splash Joe, I can uh, I remember when there was 50 days until the the first test. We were reporting about that here uh, uh, in the Fox Sports building, and it's been uh, it's been a pretty busy 50 days uh, for you since then, I suppose. 100%. 50 days. I remember that as well. That really doesn't feel like all that long ago. It's kind of gone extremely quickly, despite what feels like a long build up. Um, yeah. It has gone very quickly. Lots, lots to talk about. We've had uh, Ben Stokes punching people. We've had crazy uh, selection debates over yeah. the space of yeah. several, several weeks and months. Um, and here we are. Yeah, we've ended up with an interesting team, an interesting uh, Ashes contest upon us. Yeah, I mean, talking about 
selections before you know a test series is nothing new to us um you know it uh it causes debate after debate every time regard you know even if it is a a standard uh 11 with with not many you know big decisions to make um but can you remember a bigger sort of build up and anticipation to a um you know to any kind of cricketing series uh in in your lifetime um yeah in my lifetime there's <laughs> there's there's been a few australia's gone through some some ups and downs uh in my lifetime i'm into, i mean into my 30s but <laughs> yeah but i mean can you you know uh can you recall any in any previous uh, uh build up so many big names uh, you know, queuing up and having their turn to to, to have their say on on uh, on issues, the way that the media game is working these I, days. I, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, um, certainly. I, I think the way the media and especially with social media and uh, how that is at the moment, you you get the likes of Mitchell Johnson and Nathan Lyon, Matt Pryor, all happy happy to have their say and and chime in with the the banter as opposed to, I suppose, five years ago, ten years ago, they weren't all on Twitter, they weren't all on Facebook and. And all the all the past players back then were were just you know they were still towing the the cricket Australia line. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose when there's no media manager sitting next to you while you've uh, while you got your thumbs on the phone, uh, it's pretty hard to 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 tow the line. But um, mate, there's been some terrific banter um, in the past 24 hours with Nathan Lyon very effectively baiting the uh, the English media and the English players with with some particularly. Uh, Salty crafted lines, um, saying we want to end careers this series. And Matt Pryor wanted to go, uh, wanted to go home midway through the last whitewash, which uh, Matt Pryor is obviously not particularly impressed with, and he's bitten back. And then, uh, and then uh, Mitchell Johnson, who's a very good mate of Nathan Lyon, he's jumped in to defend his mate overnight, and it's just been been relentless banter. And uh, yeah, hopefully it's a spicy on the pitch tomorrow. Yeah, Fox Footy's David King uh, got some love on Twitter for. Uh, throwing some support the way of Tasmanian Tim Payne. Uh, and uh, we, we got in a bit of a, a conversation because I said, yeah, look, I think everyone's behind him, but, uh, you know, we need to ask questions about the selection process and potentially the inconsistencies with that process when you look at the three big decisions that needed to be made. But am I naive to believe that when the coin is tossed, uh, on Thursday morning, ahead of the first test, we can just get behind the likes of Tim Payne and Sean Marsh, rather than uh, continue to question those selections and and just and just throw some support behind these guys and hope they uh, succeed. Definitely, I don't think there's anybody who's going to be cheering for Tim Payne to drop a catch on the first ball or <laughs> for Sean Marsh to get a golden duck. I think all Australians, we will, regardless of how they are viewed the decisions on Friday when the test team was named, I think all Australians will be will be cheering for a big victory uh, this this summer. And uh, and to the hard news, uh, David Warner tweaked his neck yesterday. Uh, it looks like he probably will play. What's what's the latest on that situation? Yeah, so yesterday he tweaked his neck during a fielding drill um, and tried to come out to bat, I think face two throwdowns. Uh, wasn't wasn't feeling it, so went back for treatment. He's had more treatment overnight, um, and this morning came out to bat, uh, faced a pretty kind of gentle uh, net session. He had the assistant coach, John Davison, the former Canadian international um, and off-spin consultant, who um, 
had him in the nets. Uh, doing throwdowns? Just doing a few throwdowns. Nothing particularly aggressive. Definitely yep. wasn't facing the likes of Star- uh, Stark or Cummins or Hazelwood. <laughs> but um, I think he got more expansive in his shot selection as the session went on. So encouraging signs. Maybe the neck loosened up a little bit. Um, certainly looked in more in a more comfortable state than he did yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so you'd like to think that another another good night's sleep in one of their hotel beds would uh, will do him some favours and he'll he'll wake up good to go tomorrow. But it's concerning. <laughs> it is concerning. It's I mean Steve Smith discussed it in his press conference uh, not too long ago, um, essentially saying that Warner has some problems moving side to side with his neck, which. Yeah, you know, as a batsman, you turn your neck to to face the bowler. Throwdowns is a fair way off, uh, you know, um, walking Jim, out in Jimmy the Anderson and, and, and Stuart yeah, Broad, yeah, absolutely, yeah, and facing the the English opening bowling attack. But Smith didn't seem terribly concerned. He he did kind of make a wisecrack saying that uh, that Warner would face up like Shivnar and Chanderpaul if he had to, and obviously uh, Shivnar had the fairly unique batting stance where he was essentially square on facing the bowler when they came into bowl and then shuffled around but um, I think based on that it sounds sounds like Warner is pretty confident that he'd be there however Australia has brought in some, some injury cover just in contingency case contingency plan well just in case just in case uh, you know he sleeps incorrectly tonight and wakes up with a stiff neck then um, the great big show Glenn Maxwell has, uh, has flown in from, from Victoria to potentially Revive his test career. I mean, I know he's played the the past four tests for Australia, but uh, and would have been expecting, I, I I would imagine, to have been part of this test series. Yeah, yeah. It was um, a vaguely vaguely controversial omission um, when the team was named on Friday, but he's been flown in, and it should should Warner fail to pass a fitness test tomorrow morning, um, then Sean Marsh, who's currently going to bat number six, he'll yep. move up to opener where he's batted in the past for Australia, and he has got plenty. Of experience of experience at the top of the top of the order for West Australia of course as well and Maxi will slot in at number six as the all-rounder option he'll be the guy who can give Australia five overs every test that, that uh, everybody so desperately wants and not to you know create more debate uh, but I mean the one question that, that comes from this is um, uh, you know Matt Renshaw once again has been uh, you know sort of overlooked in favor of Glenn Maxwell in this case uh, do you reckon he will be, um, you know, a little bit down considering that he wasn't the one uh, brought in to potentially replace Warner as a, a specialist opening batsman? I mean, I'd be shocked if he wasn't disappointed. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a guy who, uh, up until a week ago, was the incumbent test uh, opener. So he would have he expected to be there last Friday, not let alone whether Warner's out. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it exposes the fact that he's fur- even further down the depth chart than, than we all probably uh, understood yeah, I, th- I think it just shows that um, kind of how how the Australian selectors view how out of sorts he is. Yeah, he, and they, um, they really want to see him go and go back and make some runs, some runs domestically. I think that's the key. Yeah. Um, he, I mean, he is looking out of sorts, and I don't think the facing up against uh, Jimmy Anderson, hooping the ball away from him, is is going to be a friendly environment for him to regain his what you know what we saw last summer. Yeah, and and also having him out of sorts, and then. As a as a as a young fella, and then Cam Brancroft on debut. Yeah, it's a pretty risky op- uh, proposition putting two very green uh, openers facing up uh, for an Ashes series, I would imagine. Whereas Sean Marsh, as maligned as he is, he's uh, comes in with quite a bit of Test experience, four Test hundreds, um, has batted at the top of the order, a cool ahead, twenty, you know, thirty four years old. He's he's done it before, so I think that would be the safer of the two options. Yeah, yeah. Um, than than going back to Renshaw, and who knows, kind of how 
uh, Renshaw's head would be at if he gets caught up on on the eve of a Test match, having yeah. spent the past five days going, "Well, oh, what's what's the what's the go with my uh, immediate Test future?" He's probably not. <laughs> he's probably not got the right mindset right now to uh, to be taking on um, an Ashes series, mm. regardless. Yeah. I think he would really need to to score some runs just to to get everything straight upstairs. Yeah, you mentioned Steve Smith's press conference. English skipper Joe Root also just fronted the press. Uh, did anything interesting come of that? Well, Joe, Joe Root's a pretty quiet character. He has <laughs> a little bit less to say, um, maybe a little bit less forthright than, than Steve Smith. Steve, Smith uh, Steve is pretty uh, pretty forthcoming in, in most of his answers. Joe Root did respond to the Nathan Lyon um, comments about, you know, we want to end some careers and we want to do this and that. And he said it would be. He said it was a bit of a, a bit out of character for for mm. Nathan, who he's. I think he's played a bit of. Um, County cricket with or yeah. or something along those lines. So he said it was out of character for Nathan. I think he probably understood that it was a little bit of tongue in cheek. Yeah, a bit tongue in cheek, a bit uh, of of line having a having a having a laugh and and trying to bait uh, some of the English players. But he said he did say that he didn't want to see that sort of uh, chat from from his team, uh, which is interesting considering they're on the verge of recalling Ben Stokes, who's done a little bit more than. Uh, have had some nasty words. Um, and the other thing that was potentially of interest um, from Joe Root was sledging Nathan, uh, Nathan Lyon. He um, said he w- it wasn't in his game. He's not going to do it. But if his team feels the need to uh, to have a word with, uh, with Lyon out on the pitch, then he won't stop him. <laughs> and finally, not many analysts, experts, talking heads are giving England um, much hope particularly given it's at the Gabba. Uh, you know, our record in test matches up at the Gabba is as good as the All Blacks in Dunedin, uh, or perhaps even better. I, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but do you give England any chance in this game? In the first test? Uh, no. I think um, this is this is Australia's... This is, this is where we... <laughs> this is why we start the series off at the Gabba more often than not. I, I can't really remember more than a handful of times where in my lifetime where we haven't started a test series at the Gabba. The reason is we win there. That's what we that's what we do. Yeah, but correlation or causation? Why is it that Australia is so strong uh, at Brisbane? I think there's... I mean, a lot of it is the mindset. It, it's it's an intimidating atmosphere um, for opposition uh, teams to, to come in. I think the the Brisbane fans are, are pretty pretty rowdy and they can really get stuck in. It's definitely a, a nasty nasty environment to um, to be playing cricket. The wicket tends to suit how Australian teams like to play. Hard, bouncy wickets, very good for our fast bowlers. Mm. It was always particularly good for Shane Warne as well because he liked the extra uh, zip, yeah. and, zip and bounce that comes from the bouncy Gabba wicket. I think that's going to suit Nathan Lyon as well. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's many factors that come into it, but definitely you can't you can't overlook just kind of the aura of the place and um and what it means like when it's Australian the vibe. Team, when it's the vibe <laughs> <laughs> it's but when when Australian teams walk through those gates they know they know that that's this is a place that they win and uh, I think that counts for something I think England's best chance of getting into the uh getting into the spirit of things will come in Adelaide I'm really excited to see mm. how Jimmy Anderson and uh, Stuart Broad um, bowl with the pink ball under lights there I think that's going to be a very very interesting contest Alrighty, let's get this show on the road. I'm, I'm sick of, you know, anticipation and build up. Let's just, let's have some uh, some action to actually talk about. I agree. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. Let's get some bounces. Let's get some, uh, 
some runs scored and let's get some action on the field. And some wickets. Thanks very much, Joe, uh, for joining the Splash. Uh, and thanks to all our listeners, subscribers out there. Uh, once again, a big thank you for Wilson to Wilson Smith uh, for covering for me Monday and Tuesday. Uh, and until tomorrow, until we have some cricket to talk about, uh, some Ashes cricket, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.